I'm Jared. Some of you may recognize me. Some of you may not because I'm wearing a jacket. Bought one for the occasion. And I shaved my face. So, anyway. Uh, John 4. I believe that this is God's word for humanity. That it will last through the ages. And that in this, he reveals his great love for us. And that there is nothing that I can say today to make God more loving more compassionate, more gracious, or more true. So this is the word of God. Let's get into John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea again for Galilee. Okay? So the context of what's going on here in this verse, Jesus is making quite a ruckus. Okay? Jesus comes in, uh, is, is born of this Virgin Mary. Uh, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist declares he's the Lamb of God, okay? He calls out this ragtag uh, group of people to follow him. He performs his first miracle at a wedding, and he turns all this water into Welch's grape juice. And I'm sorry, that's my Baptist translation, I apologize. And he, uh, and, and then also he, uh, uh, walks into a temple and starts throwing tables around and saying things like, you'll destroy all this, but I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Jesus is making some enemies. He's causing quite a ruckus. So he has to leave, okay, and go from Judea, right, to Galilee. So let's pick it up in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, okay? Verse 4 says Jesus had to. And the Greek of the had to right here means it was an imperative, a must, But we may not know, as I was researching and digging into this, that it was not a must geographically for Jesus to go through Samaria. In fact, most of the time, almost all of the time, a Jewish person would go around Samaria to get to where they were going to from Judea to Galilee. So why is this a must? It's clear that this must is not one that makes sense but is going to make impact. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, pause, how grateful are we that we have a God who understands weariness and being tired? Okay. Hebrews 4.15, we serve an empathetic high priest. All right, keep going. And was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. So the sixth hour was about noon, okay? So at noon, which was a time that rarely anybody is traveling because it's so hot, he's traveling through and he sits at this well. Noon was not a normal time for him. Also, normally women would come to the well and draw water early or late in the day, not midday. In fact, commentaries would say midday was the time that the disgraced and immoral women would draw water so that no one else would be at that well. All right? So this is where Jesus is at. So let's feel what's happening here. Let's enter into this story. Jesus goes completely out of his way in the most inconvenient time of the day as he's totally drained and totally tired. And guess what? He's kind of a big deal and has all the excuses and reasons in the book to not do this. All of this to enter into a story with an insignificant, immoral, looked down upon, marginalized outsider in her society. Not only in her own culture, but especially in the Jewish culture. So let's enter into this. See, Jesus was breaking all types of rules. 
Okay, he was with a woman. He was with a Samaritan woman. And he was with a Samaritan woman who was immoral. And it says in verse 4, Jesus had to. Why? Because Jesus came for the hurting and the lost and the broken and the sick. He came for the outcast. That's why Jesus had to. So what Jesus is showing us is that the incarnation was not just a one-time event. It's the very thing that should define our mission statement, okay? The incarnation was an event, but it didn't stop there. It has to be the very thing that defines who we are, what we do, and why we do it. It has to be our mission statement. Now, most of you, if not all of you, understand a mission statement. You work for a business that has a mission statement. You're sitting in a church that has a mission statement. Maybe even you personally has a mission statement. My wife and I, during my sabbatical last summer, we spent some time coming up with a family manifesto, and it's just something our kids could kind of grab grab hold of. And and we just said, this is kind of who we are. And so um, we have a a church member, Jeff Webb, um, here, and he helps with leadership training in Walmart. And he says that a mission statement is defining what you are doing and why you are doing it. Okay, that's what a mission statement is. And I think that's a great question for us to ask ourselves often. What are we doing and why are we doing it? Okay. Warren Berger, Berger, anybody knows his last name? I looked all over the place. Stop trying. Okay. But he's an American journalist and an author of a book of more beautiful questions. And he says this, a mission statement many times doesn't offer much help in trying to gauge whether a company is actually living up to a larger goal or purpose, but questions on the other hand, can provide a reality check on whether or not a business is staying true to what it stands for and aims to what it achieves. And so Mr. Warren here gives us five questions. This is for businesses, corporations, but I love these five questions that he presents. And I think that we can baptize these things and understand for us, we can ask ourselves and wrestle with these questions. So in our mission of what we're doing, let's ask these questions. Number one, why are we here in the first place? Why are we here in the first place? Think about that for a second. Why am I here in the first place? And your answer may be somewhat of a, you know, mixture of things, but should revolve somewhere around the, we're here to make disciples of all nations and people groups, okay, of all backgrounds. We're here to make disciples of all races and sexual identities and social statuses. We're here to make disciples of all nations. That's why we're here. Number two, what does the world need that, we, that most that we are uniquely able to provide? What a great question. What a great question. In fact, I think we get caught up in things, trying to provide things for the world that they don't need. Someone else is already doing those things. What is it that we can provide the world most needed and most unique to us? And I think it's faith in something that's not going to fail us. It's hope in a hurting, dark, and broken world. It's understanding love. Love is not love. God is love. Amen? God is love. And it's life. We are able to provide a new narrative that is opposed to what the world understands a narrative is. That's what you and I are called to do and provide. Number three. What are we willing to sacrifice? This one hurts a little bit. And I I can't answer that for you. What are you willing to sacrifice for these things? 
Number four, what matters more than money? And, and I would insert the same word, security. What matters more than your security? And lastly, are we all on this mission together? I don't, I don't know. It doesn't feel like it. I know that often I struggle with this. I don't like sacrifice. I love security. It's too easy to camouflage myself by saying the right things and going to church and serving and, and then leave. And Monday to Saturday, the days I encounter all people groups, I completely forget about my mission. I completely forget about what I'm called to do. But in here, in this time, this is easy. It's easy. Are we all on this mission together? See, the incarnation was God sending Jesus out and deep. The incarnation was God sending Jesus out and deep. Jesus didn't come to just clean us up. He didn't come and and tell us what we've done wrong and go back to his comfy throne. Okay, Philippians 2, 6 to 8 says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Incarnational living. If we're going to have points this morning, point number one, you ready? Incarnational living is God sending us out. And deep. Incarnational living is God sending us out and deep. I like to be in and shallow. I love to be in and shallow. You guys I can hang with, okay? We all kind of act the same, look the same, feel the same, dress the same, believe the same. You guys, it's easy. I like to be in and shallow, but this is not the character of Christ. So enter into this story. Put yourself in a Samaritan woman's shoes as we're about to just keep journeying through this. And I know that we like to be the hero when we're reading scripture, but just pre- let's just pretend for a second like we're the immoral ones, okay? Let's enter into the story and put ourselves in her shoes and act like we're the confused ones. Pick up your bucket, the very thing that puts the sag in your shoulders. Let's pick that up and let's encounter Jesus, okay? Here we go, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, okay? She's shocked, surprised, nothing, in no way, shape, or form in her world should Jesus even be having a conversation with her. Jesus shows us a very important key here in how we are incarnational, how we reach and make disciples. He starts out lower than she is. But he's a, he's a Jewish rabbi, the son of God. He's a man, but he says, can you give me a drink? He starts out lower than she is. Human nature, we want to exalt our self-image. We want to exalt ourselves and look down on others. Intimidating the lost with lofty religion does nothing but turn them away. We are only beggars telling other beggars where to find food, where to find bread. So Jesus starts out lower than her. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love the phrase, if you knew. Jesus wasn't interested in winning an argument. And we're going to see that throughout this story. 
Jesus was interested in winning a person. He appeals to her curiosity. He says, if you knew. Guys, we have to stop trying to win arguments. We have to start thinking we're called to win people. The world is not supposed to share our worldview. It's just not. And we're not and have never been a Christian nation. And I'm sorry if that offends some of you, but if we will grasp the fact that we are called to win people, if we'll stop wasting our energies on winning arguments and start wasting ourselves on loving people and with the love of Christ, then maybe Christian will stop being an adjective and start being a noun in our lives. Why are we so confused about why the world doesn't see the world the way we do? Why are we fighting, trying to get them to be moral, to to be what they're not? Jesus said, if only you knew. Here's the problem, guys. It shouldn't break our hearts that they're making, our world and everybody around us making terrible decisions. It should break our hearts that they don't know. They don't know. If you knew. Jesus lifts her level of thinking from the material to the spiritual realities. And he says, I don't care how you act. I don't care where you come from. I want you to know that there is better water. Verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and, his, and did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will never be thirsty and I don't have to come here and draw water again. Okay, she just doesn't get it. She hasn't gotten it yet. She's not understanding. Verse 16. Go call your husband. Okay. Verse 17. I have no husband. It actually made sense. She wasn't surprised at this request. It was regarded as inappropriate for a woman to talk to a man unless her husband was present. But she was hit with the reality of who she was. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He knew her darkest secret. He knew that her experience of this living water, that the curtain had to be pulled back. The only way that she could experience this was if she was exposed. Again, enter in. You're her. Jesus encounters you. What does he say there in verse 16? If that's you, How does Jesus expose you? Show me the history on your laptop. Show me your bank statement. Seems kind of harsh. It hurts. It's personal. 
that God has to call this out because he knows in her life that the only way that she would understand living water is by getting the reality of who she really is. And that one day, that thing would not define her. Incarnational living, point number two, enters in, sees past, and gives value. Incarnational living enters in, sees past the things the world sees, and gives value because of who she is in Jesus Christ, not for what she's done. I try to tell my kids every night, I love you because you're my son or I love you because you're my daughter. Not because you did more good things today than bad things or more bad things today than good things. That doesn't define my love for you. I love you because you're mine. He knew that one day this would not define her. All right, verse 18. Let's keep trudging along here. For you have had Five, five husbands. Jesus says, you're right in saying I have, no, I have no husband. You have five husbands and have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And I love the woman's response. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> yeah? Okay. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship, is that, that's where people ought to worship, Okay. Exactly what we would do in an uncomfortable situation. Divert very quickly, okay? And again, Jesus is not trying to win an argument. He's trying to win a person. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. True worship is that of the spirit, which means the worshiper must deal honestly with himself or herself. Truth and spirit. It requires our mind and it requires our heart. And this is important for us to remember that when we come to God hiding and closed off, then we cannot worship him. True worshipers lay exposed to the Father, bringing what's in them, not what ought to be in them, as C.S. Lewis says. True worshipers bring to God what's in them. That's our offering, not what ought to be in them. And we lay exposed to him and allow God to chisel away, as hard as that is, to chisel away and start to create a new heart in us. This is also important for us to understand about incarnational living. So point number three, you ready? Incarnational living demands truth. Incarnational living demands truth. If you're not honest with yourself, about yourself with others, then you cannot ask others to be honest with you about themselves. You cannot ask people to enter into something in which you're not willing to go or you've never been. Incarnational living demands truth. Paul reaffirms this in Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind 
that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What kind of worship is this? This is of the spirit. How will we be transformed? By the renewal of your mind. How do we do that? How do we renew our minds? Action. We have to move. We have to act our way into a new perspective. We can't just walk out of here and say, okay, I understand it. I'm changing my mind. I'm changing my view because it's so ingrained in us, our human nature. It's so ingrained in us opposing what Jesus says we're called to do. It's so ingrained in us that worship is what we come to for an hour, that church is what we attend. It's so ingrained in us. We have to act ourselves into a new perspective. We're not going to gain it. Into an incarnational perspective that it's not just the message, but it's how we deliver the message. Did you catch that? Incarnational living, point number four, believes that the medium is the message. Incarnational living believes that the medium is the message. Well, hang on. Are you saying that the truth is not defined and that we define the truth? And it's nothing like at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is John 13, 35. The world will know that you're my disciples by how much scripture you know. Or what church you go to. Or how many Jesus fish and baby Jesus fish are on the back of your minivan. The the, the world will know that you're my disciples by winning arguments. They're going to know the message by how you love one another. That's how the world's going to know. The world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. The Samaritan woman would have never heard Jesus had Jesus not humbled himself, went out of his way, met her where she was at, and was honest with her. In other words, loved her. She would have never opened herself up to him. Our entire faith is based in relationship. What you have, Christian, what you have attained, it's completely and utterly based in relationship. It's not based in knowledge. It's not based in what you've done or not done. There's no karma involved in what we have attained. It's all based in relationship. God wants to be our father. God wants to be our bridegroom. He wants to be our friend. And if relationship is completely the core of what we have, then how are we trying to win people to Jesus? Sunday services? Winning arguments? surface level conversation. Our faith is based in relationship. Why are you trying to live out your Christian faith in any other way than relationship? If we're not interested in building relationship, guys, I mean true relationships with the marginalized and the outsiders of our church culture, then what are we doing? We're looking for church transfers. We're trying, we're essentially, we're fishing in bloody waters, in red waters. The shark infested waters in which everyone is fishing in. Yet the majority is blue water where no one is going. Where it's hard, it's not low hanging fruit. It's hard to enter into that. But there's blue waters that we're called to, church. We're called to go outside of what's comfortable. We're called to go outside of what we know. And we're called to meet the needs of the lost and the hurting and the broken and the lonely. 
Let's get back into John 4, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Remarkable that Jesus didn't choose to say that to King Herod. He didn't request an audience at the Sanhedrin. He wasn't in the colonies of the Roman court announcing his identity. No, it was in the shade of a well in a rejected land to an ostracized woman. His eyes must have danced as he whispered the secret. That's me. That's who Jesus chooses. I mean, if I'm Jesus, I'm going out into the the most busy place with a microphone or a megaphone or whatever they had back then, right? Bullhorn. And I'm saying... I am the Messiah, but Jesus chooses a different way to express that truth. Verse 27. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into a town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ. Did you, did you notice, go back. Did you notice what she forgot? She forgot her water jar. She left behind the jug that caused the sag in her shoulders. She left behind the burden that she brought. All of her life was swallowed up by the significance of this moment that God is here and God has come and God cares for me. That is why she left the water jar. That is why she ran into the city. That is why she grabbed the first person that she could find. And she said, I just talked to a man about who he was, the Messiah. And he knew everything I ever did. And he loved me. And he loved me. Jesus, in John 8, you know, he's talking about living water here. But he also says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then Matthew 5.14 says, you are the light of the world. You see, we're not called to be darkness in darkness. We're not called to be light in light. We are called to be light in the darkness. The impact that we are called to be, the very antithesis of darkness is what we carry. It's light. So I I have to ask you that question. Are you trying to be darkness in darkness? Maybe some of you. I would probably say the majority of you are light and light. And and this is doing something, like it's lighting an area, but this is making no impact on the rest of the room. But light and darkness changes everything. Van Gogh painted a very uh, famous painting called Starry Night. And uh, so a lot of you know this story of, of Starry Night and of Van Gogh, but as many of you may not, Van Gogh was actually a, a believer. In fact, he wanted to be in ministry. 
And he was just kind of crazy. And so the church would just, I mean, they, they wouldn't allow him in. But, but uh, he actually what, he did <clears throat> become a preacher. And then they would raise this money to give to Van Gogh. And then Van Gogh would take that money. And, and like he's, he's sleeping in hay bales behind <clears throat> restaurants. And he's giving this money to the poor that the church gave him. And then the church raises more money. And then he gives it to the poor again. And so this was Van Gogh. And, and he got kicked out. He got ostracized from the church. And then he enters into art. And there's a whole story behind that that we don't have time for. But I love Starry Night. If you look at Starry Night, the only two things that are kind of jetting out into the painting is this huge cypress tree. And then what do you see right there in the middle? Church steeple. And if you look around the city, okay, and some of it's cut out in this picture, but every building in the city has light in it, except for what building? The church building. I have kind of, I've always, I've known that for a while and I've always interpreted that as Van Gogh gave up on the church. He said, forget this stuff. There's darkness in that place. But I've now come to understand what Van Gogh was communicating. As you look at the painting, as you look at the sun and the moon all together, as you look at the swirls and the color and the life, and if you take that cypress tree out, the only thing that's dividing and connecting actually the earth from the heavens is the church steeple. And I believe what he's saying, and others have said this too, that Van Gogh is trying to say, the spirit has left the building, but the spirit of God is in the world. He's calling us to go out into the world, to not just be contained to a building. And I believe that to be true as well. It's nothing crazy or unique This is just the word of God and Jesus showing us what it means to live in the incarnation, to live incarnationally, to not be contained, to think the spirit of God only works in here, to think that this is what my Christian life is, to be so dualistic, to think I'm going to church, I'm going to worship. Our lives are worship. Our entire beings and selves are an offering to God. And God is alive. God is alive in our world. If we will just go out, if we will understand that Jesus was showing us a very important picture to reach his broken, hurting, and lost world, to go and to be with, to go out and to go deep. Let's pray. You, God, take the time to get to know me. As you took the time to get to know the Samaritan woman. You know me. You know every hair on my head. God, you know every fear and doubt and sin and mistake. God, you know my dreams. You know my struggles. And God, to be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And so, God, we just know that you're here. And I pray that your word would light the darkest corners of our heart, God, that you would expose the secret chambers of our heart, as it says in Psalm 51, that you, God, would do a work in us. 
And Lord, that we would not leave this place unchanged for no other reason but what we see in your word and what you're calling us to do, God, to be light into a hurting, broken, and dark world. So we love you and we thank you and we pray this in your great name. Amen. Let's stand, church, and let's just respond to this God coming to our world and our call to respond and and, uh, commit and lay our lives down for him.